This morning I want to explore a territory that uh, is in part uh, a response to the request of this group. When we, uh, two weeks ago, asked for themes that you wanted to see explored, uh, one of the themes that was mentioned was the teaching of uh, dependent arising, sometimes called dependent origination, sometimes called codependent arising. <laughs> sometimes. And so I want to explore that uh, today, next week, and actually um, assuming that the inquiry is interesting and fruitful, I'd like to actually explore the territory opened up by this teaching for uh, several weeks. Um, and I'll say more about that in a moment. So this teaching of dependent arising uh, is sometimes taken to be the core insight or to reflect the core insight of the Buddha. So this is it. This is the... Uh, <laughs> okay, so you're... I'm pleased that we're all here this morning. <laughs> so this is... Uh, the Buddha said this was the expression of the insight of his awakening, of his evening and full night and morning of awakening that he expressed it in this particular teaching. And you'll see as we explore it that it's in some ways a more detailed version of a teaching which we've also looked at uh, through the much better known Four Noble Truths. And also through the teaching that I give here a lot called the Teaching of the Two Arrows. And I'll make the connections with those teachings because you, you'll be able to see that it's essentially the same um, same set of principles pointing at very similar practices. So the teaching comes directly from his awakening. This is what he said about the teaching. Thus, then practitioners, I thought, this was in the, uh, the very few moments after his awakening, now I have gained the Dhamma, profound, hard to perceive, hard to know, tranquil, transcendent, beyond the sphere of reasoning, subtle, to be known only by the wise. Humans are intent on their attachments and take delight and pleasure in them. For humans intent on their attachments, it is hard to see this principle this paticca samuppada, this dependent arising. This principle is hard to see, namely the cessation of all compound things, the renunciation of all clinging, the extinction of craving, nirvana. And it's sometimes uh, taken to be quite an advanced teaching. It's his understanding, really, in this teaching, of the conditions which lead to suffering. That's what uh, dependent arising is, a map of the various factors which perpetuate suffering. And I'll 
explain the core terms and talk about a little more technically about what we mean by suffering because what we, you know, maybe maybe just to say now that as you know uh, if you've been coming here for some time that what we mean by suffering is the is more a kind of reactivity and dissatisfaction it doesn't mean the absence of unpleasant experiences so we often make that distinction between pain or the presence of the unpleasant, difficult experiences, physical, emotional, social, relational, and so forth, um, and the reactions and the sense of core, a core dissatisfaction that can be there. And the, the, uh, we sometimes say that pain is a given and suffering is an option. Or pain or the presence of the unpleasant is a given part of human life. How we respond to it is where the possibility of freedom lies or the possibility of suffering. So we'll see that how we respond to the presence of difficulties and also of wonderful experiences is going to be the core of the emphasis. And we'll, we'll come back to that. And so the analysis here is what happens when uh, we're engaged or caught in cycles that lead to suffering. And you'll see that uh, the, you know, the map, as it were, that's part of the handout shows a cyclical process. And the analysis here is that our suffering is cyclical, we might say repetitive, habitual. And the map here and what we'll explore today is an analysis of how suffering occurs and how it continues. And the implication, which is not fully drawn out in this particular map, is that it's possible to end the cycles of suffering, the cycles of reactivity, the cycles of habit, to cut through them and we, this is where our practice comes in. Or this is where we know the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the last of the Noble Truths, is the path of practice, the Eightfold Path. In this map, we don't have a clear sense of how we respond or how we practice, but there is a second map called Liberative Dependent Arising, and uh, which we'll get to. <laughs> so, my, uh, but we can actually notice as we look at this map, and I'll take us through this, we'll be able to notice that there are many places uh, to intervene. And one thing that this map does, it shows us that there are 12 factors involved in the perpetuation of suffering. We could probably bring in another 50 easily. It's an arbitrary map to some extent. But here, there are 12 factors. And as we look at this, we'll see that there are actually multiple places to intervene to stop the cycles, to so stop the repetitive cycles of reactivity. And so what's interesting to me is that this is a uh, very helpful map. And it's something that we can apply to our individual experience, 
You know, for example, what happens when I have something difficult happen to me personally? Or what happens when I have a knee pain, a difficult emotion and whatever? That can be the basis for a cycle of suffering starting. It can also be the uh, basis upon which we practice. So we can look at this as a, something that informs us in terms of our individual experience. And we can also see how this can inform us in terms of our relational experience. In other words, what happens with a difficult uh, interaction with a friend or a coworker? You know, someone says something uh, mean to me, and do I instantly react with something mean back? And that, uh, as we know, if we get involved in those cycles of reactivity, keeps um, patterns of conflict and tension going. And there also we can also see how do I intervene there. And this is also a model which can inform us socially. You know, it, it, I think, in fact, uh, some of the people who I, whom I most respect in their response to social issues for me, it's particularly people who advocate a nonviolent approach like Gandhi and King. They see violence and conflict as cyclical based on reactivity, and they look for places to intervene. It's really, in my mind, a very, very similar model. I think we can understand, for example, what happened in Boston in part. We don't know very much now, but on the basis of what we know, we can imagine that it might be very much related to this cycle. And we can also see what are skillful interventions and what are unskillful interventions. So I think this can be, in its core, a wonderful guide to our individual meditation practice, to our individual practice off the cushion, to our relational lives, and to our social lives. It really goes right to the essence of the roots of suffering and the roots of freedom, and the roots of well-being, the roots of love. So this is what I want to explore, no less. <laughs> now, on the one hand, I think it's quite <coughs> clear, can be quite clear and quite simple, but it's also a deep uh, teaching. There was a, uh, in one of the texts, let me see if I, if I have this here, in one of the texts, um, uh, that in which the Buddha explains this text, the Maha Nidana Sutta. Nidana is the word is a word meaning links, and these are sometimes called the twelve links or Nidana. And Maha just means great. This means the the great discourse on the links. And right at the beginning of that, um, Ananda is sort of talking to the Buddha. Ananda is the Buddha's assistant, and he sometimes is the butt of whatever humor there is in the text. There's, I think there's a lot more humor if you know the original languages. I think some of the humor is lost in translation, but there, here's some humor here, so listen for it. Um, and so the Ananda was always remembering the Buddha's discourses. He was his assistant. And it's said that he didn't quite have enough time to practice. So that's why I think he was partly the butt of the jokes. He was sort of like, this guy doesn't quite get it. You know, but he's, he's very important. And it's actually he who remembers the discourses after the Buddha's life. And as you know, the, I think as many of you know, the tradition was oral for 500 years. 
things were not written down for 500 years, and it's largely on the basis of Ananda's memory that the tradition is here and with us. So we thank Ananda, even though he is made fun of a little bit. And so here he is, beginning of this text. The Venerable Ananda came to the Buddha, sat down to one side, and as he said, it is wonderful, it is marvelous how profound this teaching of dependent arising is, and how profound it appears. And yet it appears to me as clear as clear. And the Buddha says, don't say that, Ananda. <laughs> Do not say that. The dependent origination teaching or the dependent arising teaching is profound and appears profound. It is through not understanding, not penetrating this teaching that this generation has become like a tangled ball of spring, covered as with a blight, tangled like coarse grass, unable to pass beyond states of woe, ill destiny, ruin, and the round of birth and rebirth. <laughs> so don't say it's simple. It's actually, it's actually a deep teaching. And the core teaching is this. We have, for different reasons, a root ignorance. We don't really see things as they are. And of course, it'll be said that it's possible to remove that ignorance, to transform that ignorance, and to come to see things as they are. We don't see things as they are. In particular, in particular, we think that we are separate individual beings. We don't see the interdependence of things, usually. And we think that happiness comes from finding pleasure and avoiding pain. And the teaching is going to be that the deep happiness comes from the depths of our being by actually a kind of resting with clarity in our being and seeing interdependence and moving away from a sense of being separate from everything else. So it's resting in interdependence and resting in a sense of connection and resting in not trying to uh, grab things for myself or push away the negative. So there's an ignorance, which is essentially the ignorance of um, a sense of separation, and a sense of um, difference, a sense of um, uh, individual existence predicated on trying to scramble to get what's good for me and avoid the bad. And there's, so there's a, and we can say more about, I'll say more about ignorance, but there's a profound ignorance and on the basis of that, there are various kinds of tendencies or impulses which lead us, in very, given various circumstances, to become reactive, to grab hold of things, to push away things. And this is what keeps us caught in a cycle of suffering a cycle of conditioning, a cycle of ignorance. That is the basic claim, that out of ignorance come certain tendencies or dispositions which lead us, to, in given certain circumstances, to be reactive, to uh, act out our anger, our fear, to grab hold of things as if that would make us happy. And this continues a cycle of, uh, of suffering. You know, we see that most clearly in conditions of 
conflict or tension or violence, right? We see how one side hurts another, and then the other side, out of its pain, tries to hurt the other, which then tries to hurt the first side, and back and forth, actually in a kind of a cycle of pain. And that's what a large number of our conflicts are about, a lot of our inner conflicts, relational conflicts, and social conflicts. And so, the, uh, if that's the basic analysis of uh, the roots of suffering, then the response is, through our practice, we can learn to see our reactivity, notice it, notice how I react, learn a different response, and over time, uncover our underlying tendencies and dispositions, and in time, transform the underlying suffering. What this does is it opens up the quality of wisdom and an awareness which is non-reactive. We sometimes call that wisdom, we sometimes call that love. A quality of being which is non-reactive, connected, not caught in being a separate self. And this is where it's taken that freedom and the transformation of suffering is. So this is the core teaching. Again, in a certain sense, Ananda was right. It is. It can be expressed simply. It's simple in a sense conceptually. It's hard practically uh, to manifest. And what's what's interesting again about this model is that it's all that the the deepest understanding of freedom, the roots of suffering, the core of love is understood in this analysis experientially and pragmatically. I think this is maybe what draws so many of us to this approach. You know, we don't have metaphysical posits here. You don't have items of faith which you are required to believe in order for this practice to uh, be efficacious, right? This is all understood in very direct ways experientially and practically. So what I want to do today is to start to unpack the model. I'll do that some also uh, next time. Be pointing to ways that we can actually use this model to help guide our practice. I think my plan is in two weeks I want to especially focus on how we practice to intervene in the cycles where there is stuckness. And then I'll expand that um, My plan is, in the fourth and fifth week, by teaching the model of liberative dependent arising, (coughs) which, interestingly, starts with suffering, but we approach suffering in a different way, and that leads onwards to freedom. So the key here is actually how we relate to the presence of the unpleasant and the presence of suffering. So I think what I'll do today is give a somewhat quick overview then open it up to questions, and then unpack it a little bit more uh, next time. Okay, so let's look at the model on, on this uh, handout. You'll see it's divided into 12 factors. And I also have the uh, terms on the other side of the handout, just the translation and the original poly language. 
and I'll go through these and try to make try to make sense of how this works. And from time to time, I brought in also in the Tibetan tradition. This teaching is very central, and they turned it into a tanka or a, a, a beautiful teaching diagram. It's very very detailed. You can't see the, obviously see the details here, but this is called the Wheel of Life, held in its grip by a um, wrathful, beneficent being. <laughs> okay. But if you look closely, you'll actually see it's quite a complex model, but it's divided along the outer edge. There are 12, the 12 links are shown, and they're given uh, images for each of them, which I'll, which I'll mention. We'll see if this stands up. Okay, that's the best I'll do. <laughs> So, now, generally speaking, there, the 12 factors can be broken down into three areas. And this is very helpful for understanding that the uh, first through the fifth are essentially what we bring to experience. What we bring to each moment of experience can be found in one through five. Then six through nine is what happens in experience. And 10 through 12 are the consequences of what happens in experience. So, I will. The request was to repeat this. And this is the, uh, it, it helps a lot to see that there are three phases here. The first is what we bring to every moment of experience. And it's basically broken down into um, the first two factors are uh, ignorance and our dispositions or tendencies. And this is where this is also where the um, basis is for our unskillful actions. In Western language, we would say this is in our unconscious, right? So it's there with us. We're not really aware of it, but we, we know we have certain tendencies. You know, we know we have certain tendencies. Someone says something, again, mean to me, I know that I have a temper, right? And I will react. Where does that come from? You know, Western psychologists may, you know, of the uh, psychoanalytic persuasion, may say that, or, that it's related to uh, what we have developed in terms of habits, tendencies, dispositions from past experience, right? on the basis of past experience, sometimes difficult experiences, even traumatic experiences where there is some wound, I may have a tendency to not trust people. Or my, I may have a tendency to interpret everything that comes my way as uh, dangerous or suspicious, right? If I have, if I have a certain background. Or, um, and I think some of, the, some of what's there unconscious can also be positive. It's not just the negative. I can, I can have uh, a disposition to trust people, right? That may come from a very uh, safe and secure family upbringing. And then part of my learning as an adult is I can't quite trust everyone, right? But I will have that disposition. I will have those tendencies. Um, and, then, so, and then the third through the fifth are actually more, uh, I'll go into these in a little more detail, are actually more universal human factors that actually are neutral in terms of uh, whether 
I'm going to be reactive or not. Um, so let me say, I'll say again, the first five is what we bring to experience. Some of it is what's there, we might say in Western language, in our unconscious. Our dispositions, our tendencies, our urges, uh, our background. Uh, the third through the fifth are also just universal human capacities, uh, the capacity to be conscious. And I'll, I'll say more about the others in a moment. And then the sixth through the ninth is what happens in experience. Given this background, uh, I encounter experience, and, um, I, and I'll, I'll say more about what that means in detail, but this is where I, and it's understood in terms of an encounter uh, with a very simple meeting, like with something pleasant, something unpleasant, a difficult experience, etc. So something occurs moment uh, by moment in my experience, and I react or I don't react, and that in turn sets about certain consequences, which are 10 through 12. Okay? So let me go th through this briefly, and then we'll just look for a basic understanding of the teaching, and I'll give some ways that we can practice uh, in the next week, so we can, can take it home. Okay. So the first factor is ignorance, or avijja, could be called uh, unknowing. And this is, uh, in particular, um, a spiritual ignorance. It's not an ignorance about this or that fact so much. It's more of a spiritual ignorance, as I was mentioning before, an ignorance in which we think that we are separate and we think that happiness is there by accumulating good experiences and avoiding bad experiences for myself. right? And that's taken to be a profound ignorance, which obviously most of us believe in to some extent or to a large extent, right? And, that, and, and so that underlying ignorance is what we are, are getting at. Uh, and what it's saying is that in a way we're in a kind of a, we're all in a kind of a trance. Not a flattering view of humanity, right? On the other hand, we have tremendous potential. But we act as if, uh, quite often, we are sometimes at a in a trance. You know, I think of that sometimes. I know I notice, but do you ever notice yourself just for, for some reason walk, standing up and walking towards the refrigerator? <laughs> a little bit like a zombie. Has anyone ever had that experience? You're just, why am I walking in this direction? <laughs> right. that's, that's one small example. But the, so, so the pointing in particular is, you know, in terms of other teachings, it's that we don't understand the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are the teaching that there is suffering, there are roots of suffering, there is a possibility of freedom, and there's a path to freedom. So concretely, part of ignorance would be we haven't really looked carefully at pain and suffering and the distinction between them and what it is. That we haven't really... As many of us know, we haven't really looked carefully at our experience. We've gone around life somewhat on automatic. That's maybe a more accessible way to talk about ignorance, that we're on automatic, right? That we're on automatic and, um, and we're not necessarily aware of how our minds work, of our patterns, of our habits. We don't know ourselves, in other words. We don't know ourselves very well. 
And as we progress in mindfulness, maybe in other psychological explorations, we come to know ourselves better. And so um, we could say a lot more about ignorance, but let me let me really uh, uh, stop there and and say that it's ultimately a spiritual kind of ignorance. On the basis of that, we have certain uh, dispositions. Let me just say also that the image in the Tibetan model that we have in this in this um, um, tanka is that of an old woman who's blind being led by a small boy with a rope. This is what, in that tradition, that's how ignorance was personified. Uh, dispositions or um, what in the diagram is called conditioning activity, sankara, sometimes called um, volitional formations, because it's very tied to intention, very tied to what's there, kind of these urges or wishes or intentions. A lot of them beneath the level of consciousness. That these these are there. Again, it could be something there in our back. This is a little bit more unconscious. Sometimes it comes to consciousness. It might be the urge that we have uh, when fear arises, that we might try to do something. We might become anxious. We might have an urge to do something. We might have a wish to, um, to gain pleasant experiences. This might be the uh, disposition or the tendency um, to want to, um, I don't know, to overeat, to gain pleasant experiences, something like that. So there are dispositions, tendencies that uh, are driven in large part by the ignorance. And the, the whole model of dependent arising, we, we say that one factor conditions the next one. So ignorance conditions or influences the uh, dispositions or the conditioned activity. And then the third through the fifth are really about these universal human capacities. We could say, in terms of these uh, factors, that some of them are, as it were, morally or spiritually neutral. Number one and two are not morally or spiritually neutral. If we're ignorant, that's going to have moral and spiritual implications. The third through the uh, sixth, actually, actually the third through the seventh, are going to be morally and spiritually neutral. They're happening to everyone, and they are actually not places where we really intervene. We might intervene to be less ignorant or to work with our urges or dispositions, but the third through the seventh are just happening all the time because we're human beings. So the third is consciousness. And this is, uh, this is something that, you know, again, there's a sense, I'm not going to go so much into it here, that, that the, these unconscious tendencies kind of influence there to be consciousness, that consciousness sort of evolves mysteriously out of you know, whatever, out of matter, out of these urges, you know, and scientists speculate about that. But for our purpose, especially the brief ones here, we'll just say that there is consciousness, there is what's called name and form, nama rupa, which is really shorthand for mind and body. You know, we have, uh, this again, this is what we bring to experience, we have consciousness, we have mind and body, and we have the six senses. 
In Buddhist psychology, we have the five senses in the Western uh, terminology. Uh, and then we also have the, uh, the mind is understood as the sixth sense. So we have the six senses, and this is what we bring to experience. We bring normal human capacities plus our ignorance and our tendencies. And then we encounter experience. Now we're in the present moment, six through nine. We're encountering experience. And let's say that I'm, uh, I have the experience of um, an unpleasant sensation as I'm meditating in my body. Uh, and let's say that because of uh, my capacities, there is some kind of contact with what's called an object. N number six is stimulation or contact. It could be the contact with a visual object, um, seeing a bell, it could be contact with a, um, with a sound. It could be contact with the sensations of my body. It could be uh, contact with a smell, with a taste, and so forth. So let's say, well, let's say that, um, let's say, let's, let's use the example of the bell, okay? So here's contact, okay? Your ears, hopefully, are functioning normally, or enough to hear the sound. There is contact. Uh, and there is some kind of stimulation, some kind of experience with the sound. Then, uh, on the basis of that, and this is where things start to get interesting, and this is where the model is really selective, on the basis of that, there is a feeling tone. This is something we've explored before. There's, there is a, what's called a Vedana, or a feeling tone, either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Okay, so sound of the bell, and you might, it might be neutral to you, it might be kind of pleasant, right? And it might be, um, it might be unpleasant. Anyone have an unpleasant association with the bell? How many had pleasant associations? How many more in the neutral area? Okay, so, so pleasant bell, of course I could do certain things that make it unpleasant. <laughs> there can be the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience. And then it starts to get interesting. In fact, uh, one Tibetan teacher, Reginald Ray, says that the entire spiritual path lies between feeling tone number seven and number nine in which we uh, grasp or don't grasp. The entire spiritual path lies between seven and nine. Everything else is uh, actually... actually um, um, either the consequences or what we bring to experience. So what happens on the basis of when we are ignorant, what typically happens is that when something pleasant occurs, we tend to uh, have some wanting. And when something unpleasant occurs, <coughs> we tend to have a kind of aversion to it. When something neutral occurs, we tend to space out. Okay? And then on the basis of that, and again, um, 
we see this in some instances more than others. Probably for most of us, the pleasant sound of the bell may not have evoked too much wanting, right? Some of you may have said, oh, that's so great. I should have a bell at home. Where should I go? Let me go to the store, get a bell. Or maybe, I don't know, can I afford one? Like, you know, and the mind can just go off. And in itself, that's somewhat harmless, right? Uh, where this gets difficult is in, in let's say that I'm, I'm eating and I really like the taste of that food and it's really, really pleasant and I just want more. And that can be the basis if there's some underlying urge, maybe some sense of lack, that can be the basis for um, uh, eating too much or for even having it be, uh, become a disorder, right? Or if someone says something unpleasant to me, I can uh, not like it so much that I react back very quickly, which is the ninth. So you see there's actually two steps here. There's the wanting or the not wanting. There's also the action. And so number nine is really crucial because it's the action that sort of keeps the whole cycle going. And we can actually, sometimes, as we know in meditation or in real life, we can have that urge to eat that third piece of dessert, right? And we don't act on it, right? Because we don't think it's skillful. Or we can feel the urge to say something really mean back to someone, which would be number nine. I watch the tendency in my mind, and I don't do it, right? Whereas maybe five years ago, I would do it. And so what the analysis says, really, uh, is that there are these separate moments, that there's a feeling tone. When there is ignorance, we will tend, with something pleasant, to want and then grab hold. With something unpleasant, we will tend to not want and push away in some active way. And so this um, eight and nine manifest in thousands or millions of ways. Wars are essentially acting out in terms of eight and nine, right? If something unpleasant happens and we, you know, um, I don't know, some, you know, we have been attacked by them, therefore we attack them, right? Or, again, not so different from the interpersonal interaction. And they attack us, there is pain, Therefore, we want to attack them and inflict pain, so they stop inflicting pain on us. And depending on the level of power, if there's symmetrical power, this becomes a war. Right? If there's asymmetrical power, the more powerful one wins, but not for that long. You know, things keep happening. Anyway, that's to bring it to the social level. And so the... the um, Implication is, and this is expressed in the model in terms of 10 through 12, is essentially that number 10, there is becoming or existence. We could say that, you know, one way we could say this is that each time that we follow a certain urge, we strengthen the existence of a given habit or tendency. So we keep it going, we keep it in existence, we keep, we keep the cycle going, and then it has... Uh, a certain kind of tendency to be born again. You know, when I act on a bad habit, I keep the bad habit going. 
I perpetuate it, it is reborn and continuous. <laughs> and so, um, essentially for our purposes, 10 through 12 are just about the fact that the tendencies are perpetuated and keep going. So, I think I'll have to unpack this in more depth next time. But you can see that the, the actual key that we'll see for practice, especially, is in 7 through 9. It's in especially developing mindfulness around the feeling tone, around pleasant and unpleasant, watching our tendencies, and then being very careful about acting when we're in the grip of urges and tendencies. And this is very much like the teaching that I often give, uh, the teaching of the two arrows. Do you remember that? How could you not, if you've been coming? Um, This is the teaching where, you'll see if you recognize this as another version of this model. The two arrows in a separate discourse, the Buddha said, uh, everyone experiences pain. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? And he said, the non-practitioner, when shot by, when, ha- when, when there was some pain, it's as if that person was shot by an arrow. It could be physical pain, it could be uh, emotional pain, it could be the pain of unfairness or injustice, and that person has a certain level of pain. And we all have a certain amount of that. And the Buddha said, on the basis of that first arrow, the non-practitioner tends to shoot a second arrow as if that would help, right? This is the reaction, right? This is the grabbing or the pushing away. In other words, when I uh, have, my body has some pain, I tend to contract as if that would be helpful, right? And we can see often that it's not helpful. And again, the application of meditation, uh, that actually the professional application of meditation that first took place, took place in medical settings with people with chronic pain because they found that if they could actually limit the second arrow, there might be as much as 80% less pain. 80% of the pain, as much as that, maybe even more, is the reaction to the first arrow. It's not the first arrow. So you can see how this is another way of filling out this, this um, model. And in the same way that, uh, so with the non, let's get back, the practitioner learns when there is the first arrow, not to shoot the second arrow. Learns when there's physical pain to learn to be with it. Of course, we want to uh, respond wisely. If it's wise to act in some way, then we do that. But we don't have just the typical reaction that's most often there. Same thing with emotions. We have fear, we have anger, difficult emotions for many of us. We don't simply react. Fear doesn't necessarily go to prolonged anxiety. Anger doesn't necessarily go to calling that person up immediately or responding, reacting immediately. We don't, we learn not to shoot the second arrow. And so you can see how that fits into this model very easily, right? You know, and again, I interpret people like Gandhi and King, they say, we have received oppression, we have received pain, we will stop the cycle of violence and respond with love. You know, incredible. That's really another version, I think, of what the Buddha is offering. There are cycles of habits. The only way we can intervene is with awareness 
wisdom, compassion, and love. Otherwise, the cycles keep on going. That's basically the teaching here. And so if you think of that teaching of the two arrows, that can really help fill it out. And from, from my mind, that's actually one of the most accessible ways to get at this course. You see, you see, it's another version of the same teaching. It says we can learn not to, um, not to be reactive. And that being reactive in the instances I gave is more clearly connected with suffering. I react physical um, uh, sensations, I react with emotions, I react interpersonally, social reactions can be more clearly seen to be connected with suffering. So this is a very brief version, a streamlined version for people on the run. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay, so, um, so my invitation will be, and I think, uh, I think I'm not going to have time for discussion, which I almost always like to have, so I'm sorry about that, just for um, wanting to get this out. My suggestion for practice is that you especially, you look at this model in terms of maybe some significant issues in your life, maybe places where you feel like you may be driven by those dispositions. Also, just start to notice that sequence between seven and nine in your experience. Look for when something appears in which there's something particularly strongly pleasant or strongly unpleasant. And notice if there are tendencies to either grab hold or push away. Notice if you can be mindful, which is an intervention, and then notice if you can uh, act and stop a habit from perpetuating itself. So, is that clear enough, this model? Maybe maybe have time for one or two questions, if there are maybe just anything, particularly for to clarify it, please. Um, to clarify. Yeah, no. clarifying questions, just we'll do that briefly. Where you said each one influences the next. Is yeah. that what makes it dependent arising? Yeah, that's the model. Dependent arising is a teaching which says, when this is present, then that is present. It's not causality. We, it's more like a conditioning tendency. And maybe next time we'll say a little bit more about how that works. But you can see it's more like one leads to the other. I think if we were going to give a full analysis, we would think that there are all sorts of things influencing each, each of the steps. But this is his teaching tool. So again, I think if you think of it in terms of what we bring to experience, number one, what occurs in experience with a given object, you know, just me encountering a sensation in my knee, a taste of food, a sound, encounter with a person. So second, what we, what we encounter and experience, and then the consequences. So any other questions of clarification? Please. Um, for the consequences, the 10 to 12, um, I'm assuming that these are the consequences of our reaction as yeah. opposed to, so it doesn't mean like birth physical or death physical. That, that's that's right. Death yeah, very, very helpful. Yeah, very helpful comment. This is the, the, this is the model of what happens when we're locked into ignorance and keep being reactive. That's what this is a model of. This is not a model of life in general. This is a model of cycles of reactivity. And, and that's uh, given to help us understand the roots of suffering and by implication how to uh, cut through. 
And so we actually, if we wanted to, we could say, I can actually intervene at many places in the cycle. You know, and I'll, I'll talk more about that next time. We can intervene many, many places. We can intervene most directly by being with feeling tone and noticing the tendency to want and then tendency maybe to grab hold or to push away when there's something unpleasant and not go there. That's the most direct way we can intervene, but we can also intervene in other ways. You know, we could actually maybe do psychological work that would help me with my dispositions, you know. And we could read, we could come to talks, we could do, we could meditate. We will generally, uh, you know, what a lot of what meditation does is it, it starts with direct experience, but over time it gets at the areas that are more unconscious. That's what's interesting, right? It's sort of, we start with present experience, but we have the capacity, uh, much like, I think much like Freud said, Freud said the, the, the kind of the job of psychoanalysis was to help make the unconscious conscious. And that's really what we do in large part here. We, we bring awareness, and awareness over time has the capacity to bring that which was deeply hidden and driving us into awareness. You know, often we use other tools as well, but that's really the aim. The aim here is consciousness and awareness that permits our deepest potential of wisdom and love to manifest. That's what this is about. And this is, this is a very simple... Don't say that, Donald. <laughs> very profound. <laughs> this is a very profound but, and direct uh, way. Clear. Clear, but not, not overly simple. <laughs> I'm going to stay on the right side of my friend Buddha. <laughs> so, uh, way to work with it. So, I invite you to look at this, work with it in, uh, in daily life, in very ordinary experience. And then we'll come back, compare notes, and we'll go further into it next time. Thank you so much. And may this be helpful to ourselves and ultimately to all. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs>